with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all the exciting opportunities, Lord, that we have as a body of believers to serve you, to grow in you, to know you more, Lord, and to have our, our hands around the globe, Father God, in prayer and in, in supporting the children in India and other ventures that we're able to do as a church, Lord, for your glory. Continue to have your hand at the center of each and every single one of them, Heavenly Father. And Lord, we do pray uh, for our brother, Pastor Jeff, as he heads up to Rochester, traveling mercies, Heavenly Father, and be with the family amidst this time, Lord God, of loss. And Father God, we just um, thank you that we are able to do that. We're able to pray, Lord God. And right now, be with us, Heavenly Father, as we go into your word, remove the distractions, focus us on what you would have for us this morning, Lord, to grow in you as we continue in the gospel of John. In Jesus' precious, mighty name, amen. So last week, we worked through uh, verses 16 to 30 of John chapter 5, and we really were exploring and getting to see the bond and intimacy of God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus confirmed his deity to these Jewish leaders coming to speak to him, and he expounded upon the depth of the loving union that he has with the Father. And in that, we saw, and we have to remember, that we saw the choice Jesus makes, because it's a choice in submission to God the Father. And it was a beautiful portrait of our choice as believers in submission to God, the marriage portrait, the family portrait, and more. Jesus came for the purpose of salvation, and he reminds that he has authority over life, and he has authority over how things will go and come. We see that God the Son will be the one to judge at the end. And they come for him with the Sabbath. They come for him because of these claims of his deity. And Jesus just continues to anchor. And really, as we saw, he kind of just schools them on who he is and why he is. And there's no backing forth from that. He's God. He is God the Son. He is in submission to God. And God has all authority over all. Now, in light of all of that, the charge that we had last week, our little charge check-in, Because we started last week, remember, looking at the lyrics to Hark the Herald Angels and seeing God veiled in the flesh. And one part of the charge was to place Jesus at the center of Christmas. And I'm going to be reminding you of that as we get closer and closer and you start thinking about going to the long lines at the store. Place Jesus at the center. Let's keep him being the focus. And really, as you sing carols, as you sing worship songs unto him this season, really think about the words of those songs. Really think about our Savior and our King. Two, where are you with God the Father and God the Son? Thinking of that, where are you? Do you embrace his love? Are you in submission to him? Are you in submission to his design and the way he orders life? And three, who do you need to point that they may know Jesus, Messiah, unto salvation? Who do you need to point to? We had the blessing last week of praying in and welcoming a new sister to the faith, Nigeria, and it was a blessing. Pray for her. We're excited. A new sister in the Lord. She's with us again this Sunday. But who else, brothers and sisters, do we need to be pointing to the Lord? It's an important thing. We need to be about that work. Are you sharing or are you silent? Are you in prayer or are you just playing church? These are things we have to really be mindful of. Now, today we're going on in John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 31 and going on there with a message I've titled, Ignored Witness. 
Now, as we look at this, Jesus continues his words to these religious leaders. What he started, he's going to keep going. There's no real airspace for these religious leaders to try to get into a debate with him. And I personally, as I read this and look through this whole chapter, I just wonder what internally, as truth bomb after truth bomb was coming, with with love and with grace, but he just goes and gives everything. And the thing that keeps them away is a word that I want us to just think about at the start of this, pride. Now, I sometimes like acrostic poems. Can you pull up the pride? So this is one that I did. Pushing away and rejecting repentance in the name of declaring self effective as God. So, thanks, brother. (laughs) Praise God. So this is a download I want us to think of with pride. Because ultimately, that's, if you think about pride, that's what we're doing. We're pushing away, we're rejecting repentance in the name of declaring self effective as God. I got this. I can do this. And that's a big piece of what we see as we go through these passages that's keeping these religious leaders away. Yet, Jesus still persists and continues to shed reality to them. He meets their contention and appeases their desire. Culturally, we're going to see. And he will give the witnesses that they would want culturally. And he's going to give five witnesses. And in the witnesses, we're going to see a flow of heart traits as we go through those witnesses that point to this pride, that point to what keeps people from surrendering. In it, we're going to see Jesus recall John the Baptist. We're going to see him recall the works and miracles he does. God the Father. We're going to see him point to the witness of Scripture and end with citing Moses. So as we go through that, we'll see Jesus remind the purpose he came, salvation. And we're going to see Jesus call out their unwillingness to believe. And that's an important thing to realize about those who don't believe. It's an unwillingness. We're going to see Jesus continue to stand his ground, not move. And guess what? As he stands his ground, we're going to see very clearly the religious leaders know the word of God, but they don't know the God of the word. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So stand with me and let's read John chapter 5, starting in verse 31. We read, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you are willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe." You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe you who seek honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Father God, I ask that you enable me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, to bring forth the words that you need the people here to hear, Father God, that you need the people listening to hear, Father God. And Lord, I pray that the heart, minds, and souls of every person here, Lord, would lay aside preconceived notions and focus on coming to your word with childhood innocence and saying, Father, teach me. Father, show me. Help us to humble ourselves to receive the manna that you have for us this day, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So we went through to the first verse of chapter 6, just because I want to remind us every now and then as we go through this gospel, the sections and the chapter headings, those we, we put in at some point. They're not originally there. And I encourage you sometimes, just go through scripture and just let it, it's like soak in it. Just read. Read a whole book at once. Just soak in that. Yes, meditate, chew, and ponder. But again, take that time too to just soak in. Now, verse 31. So if we recall, verses 16 to 30, Jesus gave a lot of who he is, as we looked at last week. But he, it's himself talking. And the religious leaders at this time, to them it would not matter. Because there's a set thing that needs to happen with that witness to matter that he's not following. They would be thinking, if we turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17, verse 6. And these two are short ones, so if you don't want to turn there, I'll just read them. Deuteronomy 17, 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Then they would remember Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. But by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. This is... Things that they would recall, things that they would look to in the context of, okay, you're coming, but we need more than just you speaking. You need to present other witnesses with you. Because again, the Old Testament law that was there, we just read it. And then that expounded into the judicial settings. There needs to be more than one witness to confirm a testimony. And the legal writing of this in the Mishnah Ketabot, and I'm sorry if I said that wrong, 2.9, you would see in that this writing taking place about needing the witnesses. The Mishnah comes from the oral law of Judaism as opposed to the written Torah. And basically where it came about within Orthodox Judaism, they believed Moses received the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He received those. He gets them from God. He writes down everything he gets. But they also believe that he had explanations and examples of how those laws would be carried out separately that were not written down, but is the oral tradition that comes. Now, that oral tradition would come, and it's their basic interpretation of the law, and it would be passed down. Moses would pass it down to Joshua, then it would be passed down to all of the rabbis. But as Christianity comes on and grows, they then finally write it into a legal authority. And when they write it into a legal authority, that's the uh, halacha, which is the walk. 
And they split that into two sections, the Mishnah and the Gemara. And the Mishnah is what we're talking about that would hit this concept. Why do we give all of that? I want us in this context where Scripture is going to be referenced as a witness to start to understand the relationship that started with these religious leaders with the Scripture. Because again, they're tying, we saw already with the 39 categories when we were talking about the Sabbath. They're taking the word and then they're interpreting it and adding different things and doing things and then writing it down and saying, you have to follow this. And it's that reminder, we have one, one book we can follow, the word of God. So that's where we see, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. So he's saying, okay. I get the protocol that we have around witnesses. Let me follow that. Then verse 32. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now that word witness, it could be like a riddle that I'm saying. How many times in these verses we see witness? Remember Gospel of John. We talked about it at the intro. You're going to see witness 74 times. It's a very, very important word within this gospel. And again, it's pointing each one to who Jesus is. And when we think about a witness, we have to remember, it's hard to find a truly truthful human witness. It is a challenge. But the witnesses that Jesus goes to fully point to him. Verse 33. You have sent to me John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet, I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you are willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Witness number one, John the Baptist. Now this witness, Jesus, believe it or not, this is a joke, he's consistent. Our Savior is consistent. He's going to pull on this same witness. If you go to Matthew 21, this is coming to the temple the second time. This is near the end of his life. And we look at this, he again is being questioned, his authority is being questioned, and see who he points to, John the Baptist here. So we're in Matthew 21, verse 23. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. Lie. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, Again, our Savior coming to that. And our Savior is gracious, precious. But remember, that's the advocate we have with the Heavenly Father in the spiritual realm. So relish and trust Him. Trust His sovereignty in that. But we see here, He calls back to John the Baptist. Even at the end of His life, He points to Him as a witness because He knows they would know all that He did. He knows they would also know even the prophecies of John the Baptist. If you turn to Isaiah 40, In Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, and we looked at this when we started this book. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked place shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
do yourself a favor. Handel's Messiah, listen to this song. It's really, really captivating and, and beautiful and love, love this piece. And when we look at it, this is the prophecy of John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is what John the Baptist came to do. They would know this. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. They would know this. Matthew 3, verses 1 to 3. In those days, the fulfillment here, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Initially, when John comes on the scene, there's excitement. This is exciting. The the Messiah is going to be coming. Messiah is coming. But then as they're listening more, as we're going to look and review the beginning of the Gospel of John, there's a shift for these leaders. They're not looking for the Messiah as he came. They were looking for a political power. Who's going to be that political person to get us out of Rome and yeehaw? But then John is coming and he's, look at John chapter 1. Let's review where we've looked already. He's not coming forth saying a political mascot has arrived on the scene for us. No, this is a spiritual deliverer who has come. And that's what gets the the religious leaders. They don't want that. That's not what they want. They just want political power so we can run with that power and keep our agenda going forth. So we see in John 1, 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Remember this. We looked at this. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. How are you doing with that? And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what do you say about yourself? His answer, Scripture. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the pathway of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And we had looked and went back. They would know this. They would see this in John the Baptist. And then that goes farther, because now they're looking, and remember verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And when we looked at that, remember, we talked about it wasn't saying sins, it's the sin. All sin amassed in one clump put on our Savior, for you and for me. So we see him first recalling and saying, no, I'm not the Christ. He's coming. We see him call him Lamb of God. And then in verse 34, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, the first witness that Jesus pulls up, guess what? That witness just points to Jesus as the sacrifice, Jesus as Messiah. That would be problematic for them. Then we see in verse 34, he says, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things That you may be saved. These are enemies. These are people coming for him. And in the midst of that, we get a reminder of the heart of our Savior. That you may be saved. He's still, even in the midst of that, to the ones who are coming for him. I want you saved. I want you to have salvation. And that's a reminder to us. When adversity comes our way, are you still pointing to Jesus? Or do you take the bait and let the flesh run and I'm going to show you? No. Still point to Jesus. Always. Verse 35. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing 
for a time to rejoice in his light. Now, we talked about that a little. They were willing for a time. But when the reality came, okay, this isn't the political thing we were thinking. We're done with you, dude. We, we have our own idea here of how things need to be. But notice how he describes John. He describes him as a burning and shining lamp. Because he is the light of the world. And guess what? A lamp is not equal to a light. It's not the light source itself. A lamp guides the light. A lamp is a conduit for the light to shine through, for the light to go through. And guess what? The lamp eventually burns out because if you think about it, if I had everybody just look at these lights and you just stay looking at it, looking, I'm not going to do that. It's a bad idea. But you're looking at the light. Eventually, all you see is that light. And then when you go away, you're just seeing that light because the lamp eventually burns out. He must increase. I must decrease. Now he's this lamp and see what kind of lamp burning. It's a heart on fire for the Lord. It's not the cold intellect of society. It's a heart on fire for the Lord. So saints question for you today. How are you doing? Are you burning and shining or are you a little dim? Are you pointing to the light of the world or are you shining And having people think that you're the light. It's a thing we have to think about. And are you burning? Are you burning for the Lord? To know him more. To worship him more. To commune with him more. To serve him more. The religious leaders, this would hit them. But guess what? That's not what they're doing. Because for them, it's all about them. That old worship song, they would change the lyric. It's all about me, Jesus. That's what they would change that to. The witness of John fulfills their requirement of starting to give other witnesses. But I think it's quite a powerful first witness to use. Because it's a witness saying, I am not the Christ. It's a humble witness. It's a witness ordained and called by God for a specific purpose prophesied in scripture that comes forth fulfilling it in humility. And to these religious leaders who believe they have all the power, they have all the calling, they have all the authority, this would speak to them. And that's the first witness we get. Then we move on to verse 36, witness number two. But I have a greater witness than John's. I got a greater one, he says. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me and that the Father has sent me. So now witness number two, he's talking about the works and the miracles that he's doing, that he did on earth. And this isn't that idea where he's talking about it, that they see and believe. The believing, remember, comes first, and then we see these precious things. But we have already studied a man who knew this. Turn to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. There was a man of the Pharisees, religious ruler, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he lays it right there. Nicodemus gives that, and in that reminder of the works, we have to realize Culturally, at this time, the things that Jesus is doing, there's the reality. That's from God. That authority comes from God alone. And think of what just happened right before this. What brings about this whole thing? The paralyzed man being healed. 
the paralyzed man being healed. Now in it, in this, as we think about the acts that Jesus does, think of what we've seen, this man for 38 years healed, the Samaritan woman that we talked about, the dissonance and tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, the nobleman and his son being healed. In these works that point to God the Father, we see the heart of God, the compassion and the mercy of our Savior. And there's something also specific you see. If you think about the apostles, when they begin and they're going in the book of Acts and they're doing all the healings and when Peter's doing different things, they're always praying through them. Jesus, at no point when he's doing these healings, is going, Heavenly Father, in your name, Father, I ask, da-da-da. He does it. And that's something to note. The way Jesus does these works and miracles points to the unity with God the Father, points to the fact he is God. It points to his deity because the authority is in him. He doesn't need to do it in Jesus' name. He is Jesus who is God. And the works that he's doing are pointing to his purpose, salvation. And where the religious leaders again struggle, this compassion, this mercy, all that, that's now what we want. We want political power. That's the person we're looking for. So the way you're doing your works and healings doesn't fit the way we want it done. So guess what? We're done with you. They're not going to go there. And that's a pulse check for us. Because at times, there's things, there's ways that God ordains certain things to be done. But we don't receive it because it's not the way we think it should be done. And we've got to check our hearts on that. Far too often, we go with what we want it to be. I believe this, and I believe this because I believe it, and I've believed it forever. I don't care how long you've believed it. Word of God. Check it with that. Take it as is, and take Jesus' sovereignty, doing what he does as he does it, and rejoice in that. Don't be like them for who a time rejoice, But wait, you're taking the control out of my hands? I'm not rejoicing anymore. I'm not submitting to you. I will not do that. I need the control. No, rest in his sovereignty. He's gracious. He's mighty. He's good. Rest in it. It's a beautiful thing. Witness number three, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. Witness number three, God the Father. God the Father. Now remember, these religious leaders with the law, they would know this, they would know Moses gave the word, they would have that understanding, but there's a blindness in them. There's a blindness in the reality. And he says, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. It's presented, they're in the scriptures, but they're blind. Why are they blind? They had the baptism where my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that's there, but he's still saying, you have not heard. He's going, and this is where the heart flow of these witnesses is powerful. Because he's giving the witness, but he's also simultaneously showing us that double-edged sword of the word of God. Because he's saying, okay, here's this witness, this is what the witness did, but I'm now going to pierce you with the witness of God the Father and remind you that your heart is not willing to receive him. You can't see who I am and understand who I am because your heart is not open to receiving it. You're rejecting it. And as long as you're willing to reject it, guess what? You're never going to receive it. And he ties that then to the next witness, verse 39. 
You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Because if they really wanted to know God the Father, and their heart was fully in it without that pride, that pushes away in rejecting repentance, God the Father would show himself to them. But they have not heard, they have not seen Because their hearts are not willing. And then we see now that they're searching the scriptures. And this study, the word there, the Greek there, this is a deep, diligent, scrutinizing and study. But what we see is empty religion instead of communion and relationship. What we see in their study is knowledge. They know a lot of things, but they don't have relationship. Because saints, when we open the word of God... When we open our Bibles, what are we doing? We're opening them, we should be, to meet with God. That's, what, that's the purpose of opening the Word of God. We read the Word of God to meet with God. But far too often in what they are doing is going to the Word of God with an intention and an agenda of what they need the Word of God to say so they can do what they want to do. That's the issue with these religious leaders. They're going to the scriptures so that those oral traditions that we talked about, the Mishnah that they formed, okay, we read that, great, we can take that, dart it there, boom, just quick, boom, now we, that, we got it. That's what we're doing. It's mapping and creating our own, our own way, our own agenda, and it's something that we have to be mindful of, saints, within our own culture and today. We have so many authors around the world, and I'm not knocking authors. There's, I love reading. I love reading books, but Check your heart. Are you going to the word of God first and just taking the word of God? Or is it about going to the word of God so what the book says you can prove by the word of God? That's not why we go to the word of God. In my opinion, that's somewhat abusing the word of God. Because we're taking this gift that we get to meet God face to face and we're distorting it for our own agenda and purpose. I feel called to do this. Bam, I'll put a scripture with it. Uh, that can work. Okay, I'm doing that. God told me to do this. Well, I want to do this. God told me. I'm going to say God told me, but what verse am I going to put? Boom. I'll tag that verse to God told me. You can't fight with me. God told me. That's what we do. And it's problematic. And it's not okay. Because it's dishonoring God's sovereignty. It's dishonoring the way that he ordained and put it. And it's dishonoring the way we come to the word. I want to share a, a story with you. Um, This is, I had an encounter with some uh, Mormons leaving church one night and they were, they were, it's like an army going um, within the plaza and was able to have a conversation with them. It ended up in me doing a Google search to try to figure out, okay, how can I minister in this case better and whatnot. And I came across uh, Adam's Road Ministry, which is this ministry that has four uh, former Mormons that are now believers, And I want to just read the bio of one of them. Micah Andrew Wilder was born in 1985 in Muncie, Indiana into a devout Mormon family. During Micah's teenage years in Utah, his devotion to the LDS church was strengthened and cultivated. In high school, he held numerous leadership positions in the church and worked tirelessly to establish right standing with God through the laws, ordinances, and works of his religion. He pined for the assurance of the forgiveness of his sins, but felt unable to satisfy an ever-growing thirst within his soul. 
His dissatisfaction became the impetus for unparalleled zeal for serving God through the Mormon church. After Micah graduated from high school, he attended BYU for a semester and prepared for the most important two years of his life, his full-time LDS mission. In an effort to spiritually ready himself for this undertaking, Micah worked in the Mormon temple leading up to his two-year mission trip. Then at the age of 19, he was sent to Orlando, Florida as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Just months into his mission, Micah fervently confronted a Baptist minister with the intention of converting him to Mormonism. In response, this pastor lovingly shared the biblical gospel with Micah for the first time in his life, boldly witnessing of salvation that comes by grace, through faith, and not of works. And the conclusion of their, at the conclusion of their encounter, this Christian minister challenged Micah to read the Bible as a child by removing any preconceived notions and allowing God's word to speak truth through the Holy Spirit. This challenge sent Micah on a fervent quest to read the Bible over the remainder of his two-year mission. For the next 20 consecutive months, he read the New Testament from beginning to end a dozen times. Slowly, over time, God opened Micah's eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he came to know the grace and love of Jesus Christ in a personal and intimate way. He painfully came to the understanding through God's word that salvation could not be owned by his religious merits, but only by faith in the merits of Christ. Micah underwent a life-changing transformation and was born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a Mormon missionary. Now, the thing with that story that I love and want to focus on in the context of what we're looking at with the scriptures. Read the Bible as a child by removing any preconceived notions and allowing God's word to speak truth through the Holy Spirit. And I would say that's the only way to read God's word. That's the only way to read God's word. We can make it convoluted and we open it with I in our heart instead of he. What's your heart when you sit down to open the word of God? Are you realizing, I get to right now sit and meet with you, God? Lord, reveal your scriptures to me. Open your scriptures anew to me, Lord God. Come Coming to him with that childhood innocence, no agenda, no point you're trying to prove, no case you're trying to make for why you want to do this, why you want to run uh, on the tramp, whatever, I don't know, whatever you want to do. Leaving that aside and just come to meet with God and come trusting the Holy Spirit who will be the teacher to illuminate. And then it's interesting, you actually let God be sovereign and reveal his will for you through his word. We've got to be mindful, not going for our agenda, but going for him, going innocently, not intentionally agendaed. Verse 40. I do not receive honor from men. Uh, sorry, verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And there's the key about salvation, folks. Salvation isn't something where the person can't believe. No, it's because people refuse to believe. They're able to believe. They're just refusing and rejecting. I'm not going to. I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to go there. And he's reminding these leaders, your unwillingness, because your heart's all about you. And it's a place for us to check our hearts. What's my me meter today? How's your me meter today? 
Is your me meter low? Is it moving towards the red? Where's your me meter today? Verse 41. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? In this, that's that pride moment, rejecting. They're rejecting because they want to have it their way. They're rejecting because they want the honor. It's about, look at how great we are. Let's get our posse of all of us giving each other accolades and how wonderful we are. And he's saying, your, your desire and your focus, that's not where it needs to be. The glory is about God's glory. And in that, he's saying, you're not going to take me, but another comes and you will take him. And for us, with the full counsel of the word of God, we have to be mindful of the reality of this. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because again, he's talking to religious leaders, and I see a powerful message that he's giving in this moment of, you're not coming to belief, but if another one comes, you're going to come to belief, that points to biblical prophecy, that points to the timeline we're going to see. 2 Thessalonians 2, now this is the continuous of what he's written in 1 Thessalonians, he's just given them the understanding of the rapture, and he says, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, notice this is now uh, the gathering, the coming of him, this isn't him taking us up, he is now coming. So this is giving the second stage of the two-phase coming of our mighty king. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as is from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits at God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So he's giving that warning and saying, listen, great tribulation time is when these things are going to be in the great tribulation when these things are coming down. You're not going to be there anymore, but you're going to be in the great tribulation. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit through the body of believers, the church. And then the lawless one, Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they do not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And that's that reminder. We looked at this verse when we talked about healings and miracles. Satan can do wonders as well. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that lie that God is not God. We can be gods. We can be in control. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And I see there's, when, when I'm reading that passage that we're looking at where he's telling them about, you're going to believe another and this is to the religious leaders, and we think of what goes on with the precious people and the Jewish people in Zechariah 13 and two-thirds of the Jews being destroyed. We have to see that mindfulness again, the heart flow of what Jesus is giving in these witnesses. There's some meat that he gives. And it also reminds me, 2 Timothy 4 
Uh, Three and four, I'll just read it quickly. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, given to me on my ordination and something so much that I pray and think about for this precious body, that we don't have that coming in and doing things, that we just stay with the word of God and the sufficiency of the word of God. And Jesus lays that truth to them here and reminds them, you're not going to believe me. Well, there's going to be another because guess what? If you continually reject truth, reality of duality, you receive lies. That's what you receive. Then we close. Verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Remember the high regard that they would have for Moses. He heard God. He saw God's glory. Verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The last witness, Moses. Moses' writings, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all pointing to Messiah to come. If we think about Deuteronomy 18, I'll go there. And we look at verse 15, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from, uh, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Another, Numbers 21. When we see this, uh, verse 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now we think about that. Why are we looking at that? Do you remember when we looked at John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, what our Savior says? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If we look at what Moses brought, if we look at the writings there, all of the sacrifices point to Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice, the Passover, the shelter of the blood of the Lamb, who is the Lamb of God, Jesus. All of it points there. So we have these five powerful witnesses The issue isn't God needing to prove himself. Because he goes through, he's appeasing, but the issue is that they're ignoring the witness. Jesus isn't the political figure that they wanted. It's not what they're getting out of it, so they're not happy because they go to the scriptures with an agenda rather than innocence and taking it as it is. Jesus doesn't come to these guys to say, hey, I got a new religion for you guys, okay? We're going to do a new religion. I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a new work. When I hear anybody that's Christian say, I'm doing a new work, I say, whoa, I don't want to talk to you. What new work must be done? We don't need any new works. We got it all here. It's sufficient. Thank you. So we have to understand that. Now, when we look at this, he's not doing that. Guess what he's doing? He's coming and fulfilling what's already started. But they are blind to being able to see that because of pride. It's all about me. It's all about me. Yet we're called at salvation to come to believe, to trust, to rely, to cling on Jesus. Guess what? That's not just for salvation. That's for every day. To deny yourself daily, you have to do those things. You need to believe. You need to trust. You need to rely. You need to cling. 
And we see the heart flow. John, I am not the Christ. It's about God's will. The miracles, not done in any other power but God's authority. God the Father, you're not God, religious leaders. The scriptures, they're the authority taken in context. Moses, the one that you look up to so much, guess what? He's got all those prophecies. In the Old Testament, there's over 300 prophecies just about Jesus. That all, it comes, it comes, it comes to reality. So the charge for this week, and then we'll go into communion. One, how's your witness to be found guilty as a bondservant of God? If you needed to be found guilty as a bondservant of God, how's your witness? Who, who, who would be able to come and truthfully point to you as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? If we go to work, if we go someplace where you go that we don't go, What witnesses will we find? Two, how do you approach the word? How do you approach the word of God? Do you supplement it to prove your point or is the word of God the point? Do you take the word of God in context? Do you follow scholars, theologians, people, supplemental, all about doing further reading, but are they taking the word of God in context? And I would make a bold claim, I feel at this point, 80% of the time, it's not taking scripture in context. They make a lot of money, and they misuse scripture, and they deceive a lot of people, but they're not taking it in context. Can you come to the word of God with childhood innocence, without an attentional agenda? Can you come, dare I say, humbly? Can you come, I want to meet with you? Teach me. Teach me, God. I know nothing. When was the last time you did that? You opened the word of God, said, Lord, I know nothing. Teach me. And see what the Holy Spirit does. Three, are you willing? Is there any unwillingness in you? Is there any area where Jesus isn't enough, where the word isn't enough? And in turn, when you look at that, how are you shining? Are you burning? Are you bright? Are you on fire? How's your service for the Lord? How's your sharing for the Lord? Are you willing? Now, for communion, I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Because it's communion Sunday. And it's a fitting time as we we finish chapter 5 where Jesus just reminds so much of who he is. But thinking of Moses, who he cites last. If we look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. We can get lost, and culture gets lost when I think about forgiveness. It's like what we read about the Mormon missionary. It's about works. How much can I do? How much can I earn? How much can I prove? But to be forgiven for sin, blood is needed. Death. And that's Jesus. That's the sacrifice. If we read chapter 10 of Hebrews... For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. 
You're always going to have to come back year after year. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are according, which are offered according to the law. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. What we're doing today with communion, we're going to the table and we're reminded of that sacrifice that he did once for all. God veiled in the flesh. And Wednesday we looked at, we're, we're starting Psalm 22, and we looked at the pain, misery, suffering. We walked through all the Gospels, accounts of our Savior's crucifixion. For you, for me, that we can be made new. When we do this, we're going to the table in remembrance of what Jesus did for you as a believer in Christ. So that's the first piece with this. To come to the table, Jesus has got to be Lord and Savior of your life. You've got to have surrendered. He's king. You realize, I am not sufficient in who I am. I need you, Jesus. I need you to run my life, and you surrender to him. And that's a precious moment to see that, that new life in who he is. And that's what we remember. If that's not you, we can talk. I'll be sitting here. We can talk after service. Let's talk. Let's pray together. Come to know him. Come to know him. We don't put everything away right away. Today could be the first day you partake in the remembrance of that sacrifice. And for the saints in the room, for those who have gone there and done that, before you come to the table today, I always remind us, don't just rush to get to the table. I know we have lunch. I know we have fellowship, youth. We got our get-together today. We got a lot of things. But don't just rush. You're doing this in remembrance of King Jesus. I challenge you today, before you come to the table, remember your heart of salvation. Remember when you came to know who Jesus is and he filled your heart. And for some of you, it's, you, you, somebody I know in the, our precious church, there's folks when they were five, six, seven, eight, remember that moment. Remember when you knew that you knew, my name's in the book of life. And if there's anything you need to lay at him before you come to the table, do it. Seek his forgiveness. Seek to do this in remembrance of him in the order he designs. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, we thank you for your body, broken, beaten for us. Your blood poured out for us, Heavenly Father. Lord, we are so 
unworthy of anything, Lord. And yet you loved us first, and we love you. You draw us close unto you that we can be new creations, Lord. I pray as we prepare to come to the table, each person search their heart, soul, and mind. Lay what needs to be laid down that they come clean in remembrance of you, Heavenly Father. And then run the race further for your glory, Lord God. We thank you for all that you did, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word, Lord. And Heavenly Father, as we then sit down and with our families or loved ones and partake, let us truly partake in remembrance of all King Jesus did. Born to die. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.